Uh, I want you to do something with me for a minute. I want you to use your imagination. Now, I don't know where you are in your walk with Christ, but I want to use it to imagine this morning, no matter if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian or you've been a Christian for 100 years, probably not, but uh, you've been for a long time or are you like you've just been a Christian for a week. I don't know where you are with everything, but imagine with me for just a moment. Imagine if you had perfect faith in God, perfect faith faith in God. Let me describe that a little bit. What if you were absolutely confident that God was with you every step of the way? You had no doubt as you woke up every morning that God was with you and was walking with you and was there for you and was giving you guidance and you could trust him completely. What if you were confident that that everything that came your way was part of his divine plan and that someday you would look back and see how it all fits together? What if What if you could imagine for a moment what would happen if you had that kind of trust, what would happen to your stress level and your anxiety that you have in your life? Instead of worrying about stuff, you know, where would you be if you had that kind of level of trust? What if you were confident that God really had your best interest in mind? That when he gave us his laws and his principles to live by, it wasn't just because he was being a mean God like we're mean parents sometimes to our kids. That's what they say at least, you know. But everything he told us to do was for our own best interest. What if you were confident about that? What if you were, if, if when you faced temptation, you immediately went into a mode of this. God, I trust you to get me through this. And you leaned hard into God and you were able to walk away from the temptation. What if... We live with the confidence that God was with us, for us, working through us, and our responses to everything would be different, wouldn't they? From our job losses to our illnesses to everything else, that we would understand that God is with us through this as well. Now, every once in a while, I don't know about you, but every once in a while, I meet someone, a Christian, who has fully embraced just that. They fully embrace this this level of trust, this level of confidence. And they are, to me, when I meet those kind of people, they are compelling people. They're people that that draw people to them. Usually they've come to the realization they can trust God the hard way. It's not been through, like, just instant faith. It's it's not that. It's a process. We had this great discussion yesterday morning in our men's group. Uh, we were talking around, you know, what's the difference between, what is, is there such a thing as blind faith? And we kind of came to the conclusion that there's no such thing as blind faith. Blind faith is mature faith. It's coming to a faith place where if we don't know the answer, we've been through enough things with God where we've learned to trust him. And so the thing is, is that when we meet somebody who has this kind of amazing faith, um, sometimes we wonder if they're in denial. Are you even in the real world? Because you can trust God through that? Do you know my situation? But over time, it becomes evident that they have this amazing faith. Now, the reason I start this whole series, which over the next six weeks we're going to be talking about, the reason I start that is that is exactly where God wants to take you. He wants you to have absolute trust in him. He wants this place of of complete trust. And as we look at Scripture, the story of Scripture is this. The story of Scripture is God raising the level of mankind's trust in him. Faith, the word pastuo, which is a Greek word, basically means active trust. That's what it means. It doesn't mean like this, like just it's active. It's something involved in, in people that are involved in their life. And so when we look at, look at the Bible, that's what we see. 
And we actually go all the way back and we look in Scripture, and, and Christians believe this because this is what the Bible teaches, that humankind's problems began when we tr- quit trusting God. All the way back with Adam and Eve in the garden. When, when Adam and Eve, the problem they had with eating before they ate of the fruit, remember what the problem was? Satan told them, in, in the form of a serpent, told them, he said, can you really, does God really mean that? Can you really trust what he says? And so they said, well, maybe not. Maybe we, there's a better way. Maybe if we eat this fruit of the knowledge of, tree of knowledge of good and evil, then we'll, have, we'll understand stuff. God's trying to withhold something from us. We really can't trust him. And so what happened from there? Everything spiraled out of control. They doubted that God had their best interest in mind. And when trust was broken, we know when the garden started all the way back then, the relationship was broken. Sin followed. And now we see in Scripture from then on, God has been on a quest ever since then to get humankind to re-engage their faith in him, to trust him once again, to say, I trust you with, all, with everything. The entire Old Testament is a story of God saying, trust me. You know, the point of God's relationship with Israel was not that Israel was better than anybody else, it was simply that he chose them to be an example to show what it means to live in relationship with God, in a trust relationship with God. And if you look back at their history, even how he did that, he didn't start off by giving them a list of rules and saying, you follow these rules, then you can follow me. No, he started off by first delivering them out of the, out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. He said, guys, follow me, trust me, do this. And he built this trust relationship. So they first learned to trust him. Then he gave them the Ten Commandments because he said then at this point, after he established this trust relationship, he said, now I want to tell you how to live your life. It's not about just following rules, but he said, I want you to trust me first, then I want you to trust in the rules that I give to you because it's for your best interest. He didn't give them to us so we could have a relationship because we already have one. That's what he said to the people. God's first priority was a relationship of trust. Now, when we look in the New Testament, it becomes no different. Jesus, the message of Jesus when he came in the New Testament was not, um, huh, okay, here's 10 more, 10 more commandments for you to follow. That's what it means to be a good Christian. Or uh, it, it's not, he didn't really come to say, not, it's, it's about just really being good. Or here's a list of top 10 things to do. And if you will do four of them out of seven, you, you can pass. That's not what Jesus said. Because really the reality is Christianity is an invitation to, to re-enter a relationship of trust with God the Father. And last week we talked about this in the Easter message, but at the cross, sin was forgiven. And we were invited once again not to obey first, but to do what? To trust first, to trust Him, that His plan is the plan. So it makes perfect sense that salvation comes by faith first, not by obedience. Because the door out of a relationship. The door that closed the relationship with God in the garden, that closes the relationship with us and God, is a lack of faith, a lack of active trust in God. But God wants us to re-engage in that relationship. He wants us to trust him, to walk back in that way. And so obedience wasn't broken in the garden. Faith was broken in the garden. Trust was broken there. Intimate relationships, you know this from the fact, intimate relationships are not based upon obedience, are they? They're based upon what? On trust. Intimacy comes through trusting someone else. And obedience cannot be forced. Well, it can to a certain degree. Trust must be earned. 
And so today what I want us to do for a few minutes, I want us to look at a passage in the New Testament in Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me there to Matthew chapter 8. And we're going to look at a passage that deals with two stories of, of faith, of trust. But I'm going to focus on one of the stories because it's really interesting. The only, let me tell you this. Look, just, just think about this a minute. The, the only time in all of Scripture that Jesus was ever amazed by anything, astonished by something, is in this passage. Would it be cool if you were the person that astonished Jesus? I mean, can you imagine God, Jesus astonished by what you did? And it wasn't by obedience. It wasn't by obedience. So we're going to look at that this morning. Let's look at Matthew chapter 8. And um, we want to talk about this a few minutes. And then we want to, I want to get some application to this as we enter this, uh, this whole series called Big Faith. Okay? Matthew chapter 8 verse 1. And I'm reading from the New, uh, New uh, International Version, okay? When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. And a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, by the way, Lord, if, if you really want to do this, I hope you want to do this. I'm sure that's what he was thinking. He said, if you're willing, you can make me clean. I mean, this took a, let me ask you a question. This took a bound of faith, right? To believe that Jesus could do this. And so this guy had, a, had obviously a, a pretty hefty amount of faith. He had this, he had this disease called leprosy, and, and he, he's saying, Jesus, I believe you can do this. And then in verse 3, Jesus says, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. And he says, I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. And that kind of ends the story there. Jesus tells him not to go anywhere, not tell anybody, not to do anything. And so everybody looked around and probably did a golf clap. You know what a golf clap is, don't you? It's about like that. You watch golf? I love golf. Play golf Friday afternoon. But if you watch tournaments on TV, it's very polite because they have to be quiet. Because golfers have to have, you know, focus. And so everybody was kind of polite. This, it was, it was a, a, a good amount of faith here, okay? But this didn't astonish Jesus. He had seen this before. It's the next passage where the, the person's astonished, Jesus is astonished. Verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. We'll stop there. Let me ask you a question. Was this unusual for anybody that knows Scripture? This was highly unusual. What is a centurion? It's a Roman soldier who, who oversees 100 men. That's why it's called centurion. Century, the whole deal, okay? He obviously was a guy that was in charge of a bunch of people. He, I don't know what the ranking would be in today's military, but he had a pretty high ranking. He managed to, he over, was overseer of a hundred guys. And remember, who were, the, who were the Romans? They were the, actually the, the people who were, uh, had, were the rulers over the, over the Jewish people, the Israelites. And for a Roman to come to an Israelite and ask them anything was highly unusual. But this centurion that says comes... And it comes to Capernaum, and he came asking for help. And then in verse 6, it says, he says this, Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Now, I'm just taking this uh, as what I'm thinking the disciples were thinking. You know, once again, the disciples of the Jewish people wanted to have anything to do. They were going like, you know, they're going like, here's a story about his servant being there. And they probably were going, well, that's a good thing. This guy's sick. Let them all be sick. Maybe it's contagious. Maybe the Roman centurion again. Maybe he'll take it all the way to, the, to, to Herod or something. You know, or maybe he'll take it to Caesar. You know, maybe everybody will get sick. That would be a good thing, right? 
You know, because this is our enemy. This is the people that, 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 that are rulers over us. I mean, why would you want to do this? Why would you want to help somebody? But that's not what Jesus responded. Jesus, in verse 7, says, Jesus said to him, and this is going to be taken two ways, either as a question or as a, a, just a response. It says, Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? Shall I come and heal him? He asked the guy, can I come? Shall I come to your house? Or, or maybe I'll go to your house to heal him. And that sounds like, well, Jesus, that's incredible. He's going to do this. But then the centurion gives this really, 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 this is where the astonishment comes from. The centurion, verse 8, says, replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under our roof. And probably all the disciples were going, absolutely, they, you don't deserve for him to come under your roof. You know, that's probably that there, there was a thought process is there. But then, then he said this, but the centurion said, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, it's interesting because here's the centurion. He wasn't a God follower. He wasn't anybody who knew the law. He probably wasn't anybody who'd ever been to the temple. He probably wasn't anybody that even had a clue about any of this, but he had been observing Jesus, and he, and he saw something. He's basically saying, I've been watching you, and I believe that you can do this, and you don't even have to go and do it physically. You can do it wirelessly. Well, that's a current term, but you know, he can, you can do this from a distance. You don't even have to go there. That's what the centurion said. You can, you can heal my servant from a distance. If you just say the word. And then he says why he understands this. This is what his understanding is because it ties back into who he is. But he also equates this to Jesus. In verse 9, the centurion says, For I myself am a man under authority. Meaning that the Roman centurion says, I have these hundred guys that follow me, and and they don't follow me because I'm a scary guy. I don't know why. You know, he might have been 5'5". I don't know. You don't know how big he was or anything like that. But centurions, the people didn't follow him because that they were scary guys. People followed them because they had authority. And the, who was the authority given to them by? By the big scary guy, Caesar, the, the, the leader of the country and through the military structure they had. He had authority over 100 guys. And so when his 100 guys say something, I mean, he tells them to do something, they do it. He says, with sol-, he said, I have a, I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. You know, if he tells him, go get some donuts or something, you know, he does it. You know, he doesn't, know, he doesn't ask why, he just does it. And so he says, I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. So he's saying to Jesus, he's saying, I represent Rome. And my authority comes from Rome, and I have this authority, and it happens because of that. And it's not because of who, just simply, just simply because. But I see, I look in you, Jesus, and I see something too. I see that you're a man under authority. But your authority is directly from God. And you have this authority over sickness and illness. And, and you have these things because when you speak the word, he said, it obeys you. It obeys you. Verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was, what? Amazed. He was, the only time it's ever Jesus was ever amazed in all of Scripture, it's, at least it's recorded. He was amazed. And said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. The Greek word there for amazed is the word thumazo. It means to be marveled, to be astonished, to be extraordinarily impressed by. 
Nowhere else in Scripture do we see Jesus being amazed by anything else. I mean, he's, he encouraged people, he did that. But here he's saying he was amazed by this man's, by this man's uh, 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 level of obedience, a level of trust, and level of faith. You know what he almost was saying here? And he said this out loud to people. He says, nowhere have I seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. He's kind of, and his disciples were around him. He's probably saying, hey, guys, pay attention to this guy. This guy has it. He understands what's going on. Nowhere around, this is an indictment, and then an indictment of Israel, you know, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, whose purpose was in all of history was to help people to know how to have a trust relationship with God. He said, nowhere at all the chosen nation of Israel have I seen anyone who has this level of faith. See, the thing that that Jesus is saying here, the story tells us is this. God is most honored. He receives the most glory through our living, active, death-defying, out-of-the-box faith and trust. We're going to be talking about this for the next six weeks, and the five weeks after this. And, and the thing we're going to be talking about, big faith means doing what you would do if you were confident that God was absolutely trustworthy. Big faith is believing and doing what you would do if you were confident that God is absolutely trustworthy in everything. That's what big faith is. Because this is huge because we don't obey to gain something. Sometimes we think, well, if I follow God and do this and he'll do this for me, and we, you know, we kind of dicker and we kind of like barter with God. You know, if you'll do this for me, God, I'll trust you. Well, no, he said, trust me, trust me, trust me because I'm trustworthy. We obey because we trust someone. See, it's, it's kind of like this. Growing spiritually is growing in faith, confidence in God. Spiritual growth, and so often we get this wrong, spiritual growth is not primarily about being smarter or more obedient. Yeah, you heard me right. Spiritual growth is not just about being smarter, knowing more of the Bible, or being obedient, just following things well. Spiritual growth is primarily about growing in our trust which involves learning more of who God is, knowledge, yes, but also living it out in obedience, yes. It means it's, it's all those things. Because the problem is so often is we just simply, so often people say, well, you know, if I'm going to grow in Christ, and I'm not against Bible knowledge. Hear me that, okay? It's important to have Bible knowledge. But Bible knowledge alone makes you simply proud. It makes you proud. It's going like, well, you know, I look through the Bible, I'm... You know, I, I, I'm, I'm really a good Christian because I can quote a lot of Scripture. You know, and my, my husband, he, he doesn't ever read Scripture at all. You know, and the reality is, is that some, a, lot of, a lot of people think, well, you know, because I read Scripture and I know Scripture, that makes me a good Christian. Oh, sometimes it can, all it does is make you proud. And that's not the purpose of reading Scripture. Obedience alone will make you judgmental or legalistic. I mean, I cannot tell you how many people that believes that, that Christianity is just obeying rules. We talked about this last week. And, and the thing is, is that when we just obey rules, if, if that's our focus, and we believe that's what it means to be a Christian, is it, just to be obedient to God, we become legalistic. We look around at people and we're going like, I can't believe you're doing that. Look at me. Look how much God loves me because I obey him so well. See, the reason that growing spiritually is about trust is because trust 
makes you dependent. And God wants you to be dependent upon him. So God is at work in all of our lives, building our faith, but we have a part in that too. I remember many years ago when, we, when I first came to, uh, came to Great Oaks, uh, we were in the process, and this was kind of like, cool for me because I'd never been in a church where it was kind of a blank slate, you know? I don't mean it totally a blank slate, but came in and church was new. It only been, it was only like three or four years old and, and was kind of like new and we're going like, and, they go, and we had a lot of folks here, about a hundred plus folks that were like committed to God and wanted to go forward. And we're going like, how are we going to, how are we going to do that? How are we going to do that? And so we got to explore, you know, different models of what we call discipleship. And we asked ourselves, you know, we talked about a purpose-driven model. We talked about some other things, but one of the things that we did that uh, Dan uh, Baker and I came about three years after I came here. Went, we went down to, to Atlanta, Georgia, and we went to a church there called North Point. And um, all my life I'd struggle, you know, I mean not struggle, but I wish, always wish the Bible would just simply lay out how you do church. You know, point A, point B, point C. And we have so many different variations of church in different places. And I'm going like, God, you know, it just causes confusion. Why do you just tell it? You know, like a lot of things in your life, you wish God would just point it out to you, write it on the wall, you know, and just tell you what exactly is going on. But for some reason, he wants us to figure it out. And so, and try to figure out how to do, how to help people grow in Christ, because our purpose here is help people take their next step towards God. Um, We were trying to ask, what are the things, what are the catalysts, what are the things that help people to grow in their faith, to learn to trust God? And at the conference we went to there, Andy Stanley was sharing at the church there. He was talking about this whole thing of how they had struggled with that at their church. And I'm going, well, if Andy Stanley struggles with that, that's all right. Because, you know, he's like one of the biggest preachers in America. And so, you know, he, he's dealt with that too. But he said one of the things they had looked at when they started the church was this: they had this, these, these meetings. And, and he's an organizational genius. The thing is, is he talked about how he'd get together and he would talk with people. And, and he would talk with them about, tell me all the different things, that how, how you grew. What were the things that were in your life that, that caused you to grow in faith, to trust God more? And he began to realize, and he began to realize that some of the things that could be categorized in basically five areas. It's not necessarily, these are specifically in a list in Scripture anywhere. This is not, a, an, it's just simply an observation. But he said, you know, if, if we want to help people to grow in Christ, this is, these are the things that we do. And so as I thought about those, as Dan and I talked about those and other leaders talked about those, we ask ourselves the question, is this not true as well for us? Because our mission is to help people take their next step towards God. And, and if that being the case is true, the next step is always a step of faith. It's a step of trust, trusting God more. And so what are the ingredients, the dynamics that God uses to build our faith? And so for the next five weeks, we're going to talk about, after this week, we're going to talk about five dynamics, five catalysts that seems to be across the board, and this is just from observation, but it's also, we see these in Scripture as well, from observation, things that help people to grow in faith. And in a sense, we have built our model of what we do church based around some of these things, really all of them. This afternoon, right after second service, what we'll do is we'll have first step, and we'll talk about why we exist as a church. And, and some of the things we talk about, we try to get you involved in all the time, are the reason that we talk about these, because these are things that help you grow in faith. So let me go over these real quickly, and then over the next five weeks, I'm going to expand on each one of these things. The first one is this. The first catalyst is this, practical teaching. And if you have an outline, we do have to fill in the blanks, and if you want to fill in the blank, that's the first one, okay? After the scripture. Practical teaching. Practical teaching shows us where we are and where we need to go. 
I mean, I cannot tell you how many times people said, I grew in faith because I went to this Bible study. And all of a sudden, things were open to me. Or I went to this, this church, and, 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 and things, the teaching was, was practical. It was, was relevant to me. It helped me to understand things. And because of that, I began to trust God more. I grew in my faith. Uh, practical, practical teaching is the first one. The second one is, is, is uh, also um, very obvious. It's providential relationships. Providential relationships. I mean, it allows us to hear God through others. Uh, you know, I cannot tell you how many people say, well, you know, when I grew in faith as I met this guy or I met this girl, and, and they helped, helped me to refocus on my faith, or I met this person, or I had this relationship somewhere in my life, this person, my, my parents or my grandparents or somebody or, or somebody special in my life along these providential relationship in my life that this person helped me to grow in faith because I looked in their life and I saw something about them that I wanted. I had a conversation this, this week with a young lady who was talked about her grandmother being that kind of person and when her grandmother died recently, she began to question, the, the question was, was when I die and people to say the same things about me, <laughs> is they said at my grandmother's funeral. And I'm going like, yeah. Providential relationship. Another thing that people, another catalyst that God uses to help us to grow is what we call private or spiritual disciplines. Private or spiritual disciplines. This, this, these help to tune our hearts to God's heart. Uh, it's, it's where somebody has taught you or encouraged you to do certain things in your life that you've never done regularly or at all. Things like reading your Bible on a regular basis. I cannot tell you how many people, uh, a Christian, do this thing, what's called eat this book right now. I've had three or four people tell me that on face through Facebook. Is that how you do it? I don't know how it works. <laughs> anyway, it's this, this, this thing about reading scripture. Or we've had other challenges before in life with the church or reading scripture. People will come to us and say, hey, this has been so beneficial. It helped me to grow in faith. It's so cool. My accountability partner and I met this past week. This is a guy that knows scripture backwards, forwards, upside down, better than anybody I know can quote so much scripture. It's ridiculous. He makes me put, puts me to shame. And the thing is, is, he was excited about something that God had taught him through reading through scripture that, that day. See, God continually, through the reading of his word, can open up our, this private discipline. Or it might be through prayer, because, I mean, some people, you know, you say, like, well, I started praying more than just dinner, you know, not more than just uh, God is great, God is good, or, or now lay me down to sleep, or that what is it, traveling mercy prayer. I don't know, don't even know that one. But, you know, you know, we have all these little quoted prayers, but somewhere along the way you got to a situation, you couldn't, it, 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 none of these prayers fit. And so you actually had to start praying in real words, and you're going like, what if I mess up? Well, God's going to zap me. Well, maybe. No, he's not. No, he's not. You know, the thing is, God, you learn to pray, and so prayer become a part of your, this private discipline in your life, or you begin to journal, or you begin to give. I can't tell you how many people have broken the stronghold of, of the spiritual battles through just opening up their resources to God. Story after story of that happening in people's lives. So private or spiritual disciplines in people's lives. A fourth one is what I call pivotal circumstances. Pivotal circumstances that force us to, to look at God. Something big happens. It can be good or bad in our life, and it causes us, and we have an opportunity. Why it's pivotal is because it can lead us away from God or toward God. I can tell you one of the things that happens so often in people's lives, and it happens right here at Great Oaks so often. People show up, and guess what's happened in their life? They had a pivotal circumstance. First baby. 
And all of a sudden, from some bizarre thing, they start asking spiritual questions. I mean, the baby didn't ask the question, right? The baby's a baby. But they're going like, I'm responsible for this little child now, and I better do something about it. And spiritually, I mean, I don't know what to do, so I better go to church, and I better have a relationship with God because not only am I responsible for me, but I'm responsible for this child. And so it may not be as soon as the baby is born, but it's pretty soon. The question is, you know, it's a motivating factor. It's this, it's this pivotal circumstance. Or it could be the death of someone. It could be, could be something like that. It could be all kinds of things in our life, these circumstances that happen. And God uses those, in a real sense, to take us a, a higher step of faith. Because, in a real sense, like, like this, let me ask you this. It would be great if our spiritual life was like a straight line going up, right? Our growth. But does your spiritual life look like that if you were to graph it? Mine's more like an EKG. <laughs> right? Yours the same way, and you know. So the question is, when you have those peaks, what caused the peak? That's the catalyst that caused the peak. And that's what we're talking about here. What is the things in our life that cause us to grow closer to God, to trust God more? And finally, the last one is what I call personal ministry. Personal ministry. It's where we, God enables us to experience his power. It's when, you know, all of a sudden, you're, you're, you're in the life of the church, and we ask you to serve. <laughs> you're going like, I can't teach kids. Well, you know, I don't know what qualification, I mean, or, or youth, I mean, junior hires, you know, I don't know, you know, whatever it may be, you're going like, I can't do that, or, or I can't lead a small group, or, or do whatever, or I can't go on a mission trip, man, I don't know what to do, you know, and so you feel totally inadequate, you start to pray about it, and God through, you say yes, and you go through it, and you feel inadequate, but because you feel inadequate, God has you exactly where you need to be, and you begin to grow spiritually and trust God more, because you don't think it's just in your power, you know, to do, and so... These five things, these five catalysts are things that we're going to be talking about. And I'm sure there could be more, okay? And it could be seven, it could be four. I don't know. These are just observations. But I've seen these things, and these are things that we encourage people to understand. And here's why that's so important. Here's why it's so important that we grow in our faith, that we grow in our trust, that we understand where this comes from. If you drift in your faith... Avoiding temptation becomes arbitrary. Do you know that? What's to lose? I mean, my God is, I don't have a God, or my God is really small, and so he really doesn't affect my life a whole lot. So you drift, and your God gets small and distant. So no trust equals no relationship. And a growing relationship with Christ means growing in faith. That's the equation. Because Christianity is not just about being good. It's not just about, it's, it's about a relationship, a growing confidence in God. Because like I said before, Bible knowledge makes you proud. It makes you arrogant. Bible, you can become a Bible snob. Obedience alone makes you legalistic and judgmental. Trust makes you dependent. And let me share with you how this affects you personally if you don't understand this and if you don't continually grow in this process in God, even though it isn't an EKG, okay? Because personally, if you allow yourself to become disconnected from practical teaching, if you disconnect from private disciplines, the things that help you to grow, if you unplug from key relationships, if you get too busy to serve, what's at stake is not simply your behavior. What's at stake is your faith, your worldview, how you view everything and the way you process life. Because this isn't about, Christianity isn't about being a good person or being a church person even. 
Because when your faith takes a hit, your entire worldview takes a hit, and everything you do in life becomes obscured if you don't grow. So that's why our purpose here at Great Oaks is to help you take your next step, to help you to recognize where, how God does that and how it catalyzes those things. Parents, if you're a parent, let me tell you something. You want your kids to trust God? I believe you do. Here are the five things that God uses, these things we just talked about. This is why your kids need to be connected. It's not optional that they're not in kids' town, upstreet, all these different things. It's not optional that they're not connected in some kind of a youth ministry, whether it be culture shift or breakaway. i got to remember the names of everything here, okay? Uh, it's, some of us think it's an option. Well, our kids got 42 things. Let me explain to you. Do you want your kid to trust God? They need to have other influences in their life other than you. You need to be a great influence, yes. But you need other adults who are saying the same things to your kids that you would say to them because when they become teenagers, they will listen to them and not to you. Bad news. True news. Even to the pastor. I went through it. And I had to make sure that there were other adult voices who were speaking into my kids' lives. Because they wouldn't listen to me. Even if I was perfect and right. <laughs> Which I don't believe. You know that to be true anyway. You see, you've got to teach your kids to read their Bibles, to give, to serve. It's not just about being good kids. It's about having a great faith. And that's what we want, I think, in all our kids. Leaders. If you're here and you're a leader in a small group, you're a leader and you teach over in, in one of the kids' areas or in, or in, youth, in youth ministry areas or anywhere... Make it practical. Make your teaching practical. Group leaders, keep it relational. You are instruments to grow faith in people. That's a big responsibility, right? You are instruments to grow faith in children, in youth, and adults. And that is honoring to God. That You couldn't do anything greater. That's the greatest thing you can do. So the conclusion is this. Imagine what your life would look like if you trusted God completely. Imagine. God doesn't just want your obedience. He could force that. You know that? I believe that God has the power to force our obedience if he wanted to. He wants you to trust him, to love him. And at times, his ways are not our ways. His rules are not our rules. In those moments when he whispers, trust me, and you don't understand, he wants you to trust him. And the maturity of your faith will determine your response. And the maturity of your faith will be greatly determined by these five things and how you allow them to work in your life in ways that will help you to grow. See, our goal isn't to know more or even do more. It is to trust more deeply. And that the Father is honored and our lives are better. You know, it's ironic when I read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when I read them, these are accounts of Jesus' life. The men who knew the Old Testament the best, the men who were most obedient to the law, who were considered the good guys, and that, I mean, as far as good followers of the law, you know that those, those guys who were, knew those things, they didn't recognize who Jesus was. Because there was no moment-by-moment -moment faith. It was only about obedience and about knowledge. It wasn't about a relationship. There was no trust. So when Jesus came along, 
And he announced, guys, let me, let me, let me explain something. Can I, can, I, can I have your attention, please? Can I introduce you to my friend, the centurion? Um, he doesn't know squat about the Old Testament. He has never been to the temple. And he probably couldn't recite any of the Ten Commandments if I held a gun to his head. But this man right here has more faith than anybody I have ever met. And I am astonished because that is what I want for my people. So we're going to explore these five things. How God grows our faith because they are the keys to you taking your next step with God. And at the end of the series, my prayer and my hope is this, is I would love to think that these five things become indelibly printed on your mind. And you would allow these to grow your faith so that you would trust God even more. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.